Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. I'm Kate Urquhart from Minneapolis. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the director and writer Nicole Holof Center on the show this week. Her movie, Enough Said, is about a relationship between two divorcees. In real life, Nicole is a divorcee, too. My ex-husband and I used to argue who's funnier, and um, I was so much funnier. <laughs> what a horrible argument. Horrible. I'm funnier. I'm Why saying. did you marry that man? <laughs> well, he's entitled to think he's funnier, but I did, I did um, you know, uh, quiz my, my children, and they agree that I'm funnier. So <laughs> there you go. It's bullseye. Coming up, my interview with Nicole Holof Center. She's written and directed five films. The fifth, her newest, is called Enough Said. It's a sweet and sharp movie starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the late James Gandolfini. The movie looks at a bunch of life stuff, the aftermath of divorce, how tough it is to make new friends as an adult, and the weird ways we deal with people who might be a little richer or poorer than we are. Yeah, I mean, human behavior is entertaining. It's also horrifying. And I hope that I'm expressing that as well. And then later we go from the end of marriage to the beginning. Husbands is a sitcom that lives on the web. It was created by Brad Bell and the longtime TV writer Jane Espenson. I'll sit down to talk with both of them. The show is about a newly married gay couple. Jane is straight and Brad is gay. And even though neither of them has ever been married in real life, they're a perfect creative team for the show. We're writing a show about two people who don't know how to be married. Yeah. So I think it's it's um, fitting that two people who haven't been married are writing it. Plus, Eric Adams from the AV Club shares a couple of off-the-radar TV picks for the fall. And I tell you what it takes for an 18th century architect to get an ancient Egyptian sarcophagus into his basement. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Nicole Holliff Center is one of the relatively few folks still making human-scale indie films that don't feel like art movies. Her films are rare birds, super funny comedies that are driven by character and emotion rather than situation, or maybe thoughtfully rendered dramas that happen to have a lot of really funny stuff in them. She debuted with Walking and Talking in 1996, and she's steadily built her reputation through films like Friends with Money, Please Give, and her newest Enough Said. Enough Said stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus as a divorcee who falls for another divorcee played by James Gandolfini. Here's the two of them meeting at a party early in the film. You know what? Hold this for me. There's not one man at this party that I'm attracted to. Hey, Jason. How you doing? This is Albert. Hi. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Hey. So this is a nice party. Got all the nice white balls hanging down and stuff. Uh, Eva was just telling me that there are no men at this party that she's attracted to. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know why you would make that announcement. Really? But, um, Is that unusual? No, actually. To be honest, it's not unusual. No offense. No, no, that's okay. It's okay. There's no one here I'm attracted to either. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, it's kind of an ugly crowd, really. <laughs> Jason, you've got a kid in college now, right? Two. Yeah, I have one leaving in the fall. Oh, I do too. That's all I have. Me too. Come on, guys. Your kids are supposed to go away, right? I mean, that's healthy. No, shut up. Yeah, shut up. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nicole, welcome to Bullseye. It's really Thank exciting you. to have you on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Was that like part of a writing challenge that you set for yourself? Um, world's most difficult slash unpleasant meet cute. <laughs> no, I guess that meet cute just happened. Um, I, it was not a goal, um, but I guess it occurred. I want to ask you about casting your movies. Mm-hmm. Catherine Keener has been in uh, has been in all your movies. Julia Louis Dreyfus stars in this movie and is totally amazing. Um, the late James Gandolfini is also totally amazing. And one of the things that these people have. Um, I thought Oliver Platt was so amazing in um, Please Give. Good. One of, the, one of the things that all these people have is this uh, sense when you watch them on screen of warmth and decency mm-hmm. that allows you to let them do lousy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and I wonder if that's something that you're that you're looking for when you're casting actively. Like if you're looking mm-hmm. for someone that is just just seems great mm-hmm. so that you can make them do lousy things and have the audience not turn against them. Yeah. No, I'm conscious of a actor's likability factor. Not so much like I'm worried they have to be likable in every scene or end up likable, but I do feel for them to pull off these um, immature acts, we have to feel okay about watching it. We don't want to be disgusted and walk out. Um, so, yeah, I'm conscious of their warmth, their sweetness when I meet them or things they've been in. Um, so, yeah, it's very important if I'm going to have them act like immature idiots. One of the themes that plays out in the film is each of these divorced characters thinking about their ex-partners in terms of essentially trivial things that Mm -hmm. they have come to hate more than anything else in the world. Mm -hmm. I wonder if those things are actual things, in your opinion, whether those things are actual things or whether those things are just these symbols of other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Well, they're pretty shallow. I mean, everybody has things about their spouse or whatever that annoys them. And I don't think anybody breaks up with somebody because they, you know, snore or, you know, eat loudly or, you know, all the things that bug us. And I hope that that's clear in the movie that I'm not that shallow. Um, The last scene, at least with Keener, does explain, you know, those are just little things. In the end, he just didn't really get me. And for me, that that revelation is that, you know, she didn't feel seen. She didn't feel loved. And so she attacks him for these irritating things that she remembers. Do you feel cynical about yes. love generally? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm about to ask a question that is yeah. almost literally as broad as do you feel cynical about everything? Uh-huh. It's one step down from that, right. which is oh. do you feel cynical about love generally? You know, I think that I do. And at the same time... I really want to make it work. So I don't feel like my heart is closed up. I'm in a relationship, and I want it to last forever. Um, That's what I would like. Do I think it will last forever? I have no idea. And I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't, but I'd really love it to. So is that cynicism or is that naivete or hopefulness? I guess I have contradicting feelings. I want to talk to you about how you ended up with uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the star of the movie. Because, mm-hmm. you know, she has been mostly a television actress. She is totally amazing 
uh, on television. And just so, so, I mean, as funny a television actor or actress as there is. But what made you think of her in in this very sort of different context? Mm-hmm. Um, I I felt feel the same way about her as you. I think she's a genius. There's nobody else like her. Um, nobody as funny as she is. And we got together because she had read the script, and I was thrilled at the chance to meet her. So we sat down to have lunch together, and you know, she wasn't. Uh, the vice president, and she wasn't Elaine Bennis, and she wasn't Christine. She was Julia, a warm, intelligent actor who was my age, Who and we had so much in common. We hit it off right away. And the way we talked about the script made me feel like she could do it. And I really didn't look back after that. Um, we talked about our kids' impending departure for college. Hers had already gone. Mine still has a couple of years, but... Um, you know, she started to cry when talking about the loss of her son in, to college. And I thought, oh, there it is. There's her emotion. It's completely accessible and available. And she's my girl. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Nicole Hall of Center. She's written and directed five feature films. The newest is called Enough Said. It stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the late James Gandolfini as divorced parents who fall in love. As I was watching the movie, I was... I was struck by the fact that there were so many of her uh, takes Mm -hmm. um, that in the uh, comedy performance sense rather than the filmmaking sense. So many of her takes that were in some ways a a move that she could have used on Seinfeld or a move that she could use on Veep Mm -hmm. um, that were so deeply imbued with emotion in this film and worked perfectly mm-hmm. in that context that her and it I guess what it means is that there was a, a lot of real stuff driving her performances say on you know in a given episode of Seinfeld it wasn't mm-hmm. just a funny face right um but I was that surprised I mean I wasn't prepared for it and I'm somebody that's wa- literally watched every episode of Seinfeld yeah me too do you remember what like can you I mean, there's a scene in which she has um, she is being admonished by um, the mother of a a teenager who's best friends with her daughter um, for sort of overstepping her bounds. And she and the mother calls her a word that I can't say on the radio. And um, and. she does a take that is both – it's really a sequence of two takes mm-hmm. that is both incredibly funny. You know, she sort of starts with laughing in her face and moves to something that is not exactly sadness but um, is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And that was a moment where I thought, wow, like if she did those in quick succession – to a similar situation on Seinfeld or on The New Adventures of Old Christine, it would also be really funny because she's super good at it. Mm-hmm. But, oh, wait. Oh, and it's also feelings acting. <laughs> right, right. It's true. I mean, I wrote it in the script as she laughs and then she doesn't. So Julia took it, you know, to a brilliant point. Um I think it's the context. 
if you're with this character and you know what she's going through and you see her face fall, the, the and doesn't part, um, it has so much more meaning than it would in, you know, a sitcom that doesn't go that deep. But there were times, though, she would do kind of some moves that Elaine does because that's Julia. And I had to cut them out. But I was still really excited to see them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like she if she bangs on the table, you know, she didn't say get out and push anyone across the room or anything like that. But there's like a couple of moves that are just so her, innately her. I want to talk about an, another really amazing scene in the film, um, which is the scene where um, where Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character and, and James Gandolfini's character are together in bed. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus says, I'm tired of being funny. And James, it's a very it's a very intimate, uh, emotional exchange. She says, I'm tired of being funny. And James Gandolfini says, me too. And then she says, but you're not funny. Mm-hmm. Um, she can't help herself. Number one, I, I, I went to this movie by myself because um, it was the middle of the day. Everybody's and you people. don't have any friends. I don't but... have any friends. Yeah. It's a long story. Um, <laughs> starts in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> so, um, it, so, number one, it was brilliantly funny. I mean, I was like, wow, that is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in really? a movie. Good. Yes. I was laughing like an idiot by myself <laughs> in this movie theater. Um, but, uh, but also just felt like a a real feeling that someone had had. And I figured since you wrote and directed the movie, I, I figured at some point you had probably had that mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. I wasn't aware that I was, that I have ever had that feeling, but I put myself in her shoes, you know, falling into bed with a man that she really felt comfortable with and feels like, oh, I could be me with him. And that's really what it means. It's like, I'm so tired of being on. And when I wrote it, it just came out that way. And then he says, me too. And then, I don't know, I just typed, but you're not funny. It's just the way I just can't resist a joke, I suppose. Um, yeah. I think p- part of what makes it so impactful mm-hmm. is that she is a woman and he's a man. Really? Right? Don't you think so? That she's being the funny one? Yeah, that mm-hmm. she basically that she is not only being the funny one, mm-hmm. but telling him that he's not he's funny. Not funny. I don't know. I, I that's for you to think about. I don't think about that. Really? Well, no. I just I'm, I'm a woman, so I'm going to write it. It's going to come out of my mouth, and then, and she's definitely more the funny one in the relationship. He clearly has a sense of humor and makes her laugh, but she's more of the goofball. I think that dudes are more likely to presume themselves to be worth listening to and worth laughing mm-hmm. with. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> My ex-husband and I used to argue who's funnier. And um, I was so much funnier. <laughs> what a horrible argument. Horrible. I'm funnier. Why did saying... you marry that man? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's entitled to think he's funnier. But I did, I did, um, you know, uh, quiz my, my children and they agree that I'm funnier. So... <laughs> There you go. But I mean, it is. I, 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 I don't think I'm making that up, right? About Oh, no. Men always think, well, if you go, you know, men talk so much more about themselves. And um, most men, I think, have more confidence than most women. That is a generality. Um, 
But my my boyfriend clearly, you know, acknowledges that I'm funnier than him. And I love him for that because actually he's incredibly funny as well. So that's just very endearing. Do you do you ever feel weird about um, uh, being relatively yes. far out on an island? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Relatively far out on an island of uh Women making movies with mostly female protagonists, mm-hmm. and also one of the points of the movie is to be funny. Wait, say that again. Do you ever feel out on an island about that? I mean, there's relative. If you compare it to the number of dudes mm-hmm. making movies about dudes, where the point is that it's funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very much out on the island of women filmmakers. It's a very small island, and there should be more of us on it. Um, I do feel um, that, I don't know, there's certain things that, you know, men can get away with that women can't. And there's one line in the movie that I was coerced to cut out. And it's such a dude line. And I feel like if a dude said it, maybe maybe I'm crazy and I'm just disgusting. Um, but it was this line where they're in bed together and he says, I think, I think Tess really liked you. Jim is saying this about his daughter. I think my daughter really liked you. And then she says, oh, I can't bear how much I love my daughter. I think she could pee on my face and I wouldn't mind. <laughs> and is that, see, you're laughing. And, yeah, then, that's really funny. and then he says, what, an, what a sweet thought. But he still <laughs> is endeared by it. You know, he still's charmed by it. But everyone was like, you've got to cut this line out. This is disgusting. And it's how I feel. I swear to God, my kids could pee on my face. And I, w- I mean, I would mind, but not like I'd mind if you peed on my face. It would be a whole different experience. So I think there is a stereotype that <laughs> women can't be as disgusting as men. And I want to I wanna challenge that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I, I think also that is a – I mean, one of the things that I love about your movies is that they are um, – very, you know, as I said, they're they're very emotionally and character driven films, mm-hmm. and they also have funny stuff in them that is funny. Mm-hmm. It's not just a keen obs. I mean, they are sometimes involve a keen observation, but they're not that kind of thing where you you nod and smile and think, indeed, indeed, <laughs> that was funny, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's I'm good. Okay. I think it's I think you have to make a choice when you're making a film that's going to be about characters and actual actual real stuff to say. And you know what? The funny stuff is actually going to be funny. I'm not going to wuss out on mm-hmm. and and just make it warm instead or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't put as much thought into it as you um, ascribe to me. I it's just I I. I, I sound like a freak right now to say that, you know, it just comes out this way. But I suppose every time a scene gets dramatic, I in, just intuitively stick something funny in it. Even if it stays dramatic, um, it's just my taste or it's my sense of humor or it's how I would deal with that situation. And um, so that, you know, I'm glad that it still ends up being laughing funny instead of just smiling funny. That's fantastic. That's my goal. And to make people cry. I like that, too. I want to play another clip from my guest, uh, Nicole Holof Center's new movie. It's a scene where uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character, whose name is Eva, is meeting Marianne, who is uh, played by Catherine Keener. And 
they're about to launch into a sort of series of friendship dates. Mm-hmm. Um, so may, this is at a party. Let's take a listen. Those shoes and that outfit you've got with the purse and everything, that looks so nice. Thank you. Sure. I should bring you everywhere. <laughs> I love your outfit. Oh. So you're a masseuse? I am, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All what right. is it that you do? I'm a poet. Oh, and I'm a dreamer. <laughs> no, really. You're really a poet? I am. Oh. Do you do that for a living? I do. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. You do, I don't. <laughs> You're a poet. Now I know it. It's a good one. <laughs> Feel free to steal it. <laughs> that's all. That's mostly Julia improvising. She <laughs> she made her own poem on the spot. There's there's this gulp that she does about two thirds of the way into that clip that I just mm-hmm. love love to death. Yeah. The thing that makes me believe the conceit of this film, which is. Um, you know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus trying to stay in this friendship relationship when she's got this completely oppositional romantic relationship going at the same time mm-hmm. is that I feel like I understand the appeal of meeting someone that you really want to be your friend when you're a grown-up and you don't really meet that many people that you could be friends with actually. Mm-hmm. And they both talk about not having any friends. Right, right. They don't have enough. Um, yeah. And, I mean, she ad- looks up to her. She kind of has a girl crush on her, and she doesn't want to let that go once she finds out who she is. At the same time, she also wants to find out stuff from her. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of—I think I unconsciously based her relationship with Marianne— on this um, sort of friendship I had with an ex-girlfriend of a boyfriend I had who seemed really perfect, so much more perfect than I am or was. And I kind of looked up to her and sort of wanted to glean what it was that she had that I could, um, you know, aspire to having. And it was ridiculous. I mean, she didn't – I don't think she knew I felt that way. And she was just a person. But – I think that's where it came from. She probably knows who she is. After a break, we'll have more with Nicole Holliff Center and Eric Adams from the AV Club will recommend a couple of off-the-radar TV picks. Then Jane Espenson and Brad Bell talk about their sitcom that follows a newly married gay couple. It's called Husbands. That's all coming up on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us online at twitter.com slash bullseye. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Nicole Holliff Center. She's the writer and director of the film Enough Said. It's a comedy starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the late James Gandolfini. Her previous films include Friends with Money and Please Give. One of the things that um, has come up in a couple of your movies and is a, a big part of your new movie, Enough Said, is... Class relationships, in, especially in situations where um, people are brought together by, um, you know, friendship and whatever mm-hmm. cultural stuff, but separated by class. Uh-huh. Um, and 
I wonder if if that's part of your movies because it's something that you think about a lot. Mm-hmm. I I guess I find that stuff pretty entertaining. And in, and in Friends with Money, I wouldn't say they're separated by class. I would say they're all from the same class. But as they get older, some make more money than others or have more money than others. But they're all educated kind of upper middle class people in general, I think. Um, or the disparity might just be too huge for the friendship to thrive. Um, but I do find all that stuff just so entertaining. Money I, and how people behave about money is I, I still have another movie in me. Um, what people will spend on themselves and what they won't spend and what's cheap and what's expensive and what they feel entitled to and what they feel other people are entitled to. It's endlessly um, entertaining to me. It's funny to me that you say that it's endlessly entertaining. That's mm-hmm. not the adjective that I expected. Is it one mm-hmm. that you that you like picked specifically? Picked? What do you yeah, mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, did you give consideration when you said when you said oh. entertaining? Because normally, I think um, you know people who are people who make artwork about uh, class and money. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily picking entertaining, unless maybe they're making a slobs versus snobs movie. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, human behavior is entertaining. It's also horrifying, and um, I hope that I'm expressing that as well. Um, but I wouldn't be writing about it because I find it um, important. That just I can't write from that place. I can only write from what's interesting to me. And I don't mean entertaining like ha-ha. I just mean interesting to me. Um, what gets me to sit down and, and take notes about this person and that person and remember how they did that. And that's entertaining to me. So that's what I mean. Your movie Friends with Money was uh, about Jennifer Aniston's character and her quateria friends who had all sort of over the course of their lives become much more affluent than her. And mm-hmm. she was working as a house cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a household made uh, subplot mm-hmm. in um, in your new movie. Um, I guess I, I was trying to think of what to ask about this because it's it's so like it's stands out to me so vibrantly. Uh-huh. Um, but I guess maybe a question to ask is... Um, Why? No. Like, <laughs> where, what, was, there, was there household help in any of the houses that you lived in when you were a kid? Or do you have it now? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I was growing up um, and we moved to California, we had a Mexican woman live in our house. And, you know, that was really weird and um, spoiled me to some extent that I'm aware of now. You know, she did my wash or clean my room and all that stuff. Um, I remember being grateful for it, but it was a little strange. And I always wondered what could she possibly be thinking. I, I thought that all the time. And I felt guilty. And I wanted to be her friend and take care of her and have her clean my room at the same time. So those... Um, contradictions, you know, started with me and continue to be in me. Um, I have, you know, somebody who comes to my house uh, every other week to clean and I just can't bear to be in there because I want to hear her life story and then I don't want to hear her life story and then I'm giving her money, but then I'm mad because she didn't clean this table well. It's insane. It's a crazy relationship and I find it entertaining and um, interesting, um, the contradictions and, and, and yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
My guest is Nicole Holof Center. She's the writer and director of Enough Said, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the late James Gandolfini. It's a comedy that deals with the aftermath of divorce, the difficulty of making new friends as an adult, and how we deal with class differences. So I want to play one more clip from the film. So in this scene, uh, Ava and and Albert, who uh, they've just met Albert's daughter, whose name is Tess for lunch. She's been um, she's been rude, rude. Yeah, she's been a teen and uh, she's about to she's leaving them to go hang out with her friends. And the other context in this is that um, Eva has had this conversation in with her daughter and her daughter's best friend that has given rise to some worries about what teenagers are up to these days. Dad, I'm going to go get a coffee, OK? Bye. Thank you for lunch. Okay. So nice to meet you. You too. Yeah. Great. Bye. Bye. Be careful. She has a lot of friends. You think I have threesomes? What? Why would you say that? I I know, but apparently it's what they're doing these days. That's what I heard. Oh, my God. Right? (laughs) I'm afraid that window's closed. There was a window? (laughs) (laughs) I love his horrified reaction. Are you concerned about teens these days? <laughs> Absolutely. I have twin 16-year-old sons. So, of course, um, I'm yeah, Joe and Gabe. And um, I'm just stunned by what's going on these days. I'm just stunned. It was mo- it, That may- mostly came out of the idea that it's kind of cool to be by these days and um, or fluid, as they say, and that a lot of the girls were – at school, I think we're, you know, hooking up and hooking up in front of boys to entertain the boys or just because they wanted to play around. And, you know, I kind of think, well, I have many opinions about it. But, yes, of course, I'm concerned or curious. Does it feel uh, – how do you feel about the fact that you are a a cool lady from Hollywood, but you're – which I'm just going to stipulate. You don't have to address that. Um that you are a cool lady from Hollywood, but you're also uh, soccer mom. Necessarily concerned about teens and what they're up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, because yeah. Hollywood is full of these these grown ups that are mm-hmm. weird and act like teenagers. Right, but <laughs> it's I don't really. Weird. I don't. I don't talk to them. I just. Uh, I don't feel associated with that part of the world. I'm not cool. I mean, somebody probably thinks I'm cool, but I'm not. And um, I have a cool job. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm completely absorbed in my kids' lives. And that's at the forefront of my focus all the time, my kids and what they're up to and how to be a parent to teenagers. It's, I have no idea what I'm doing. What Now, I've seen my wife's mother relate to my wife, and um, and I've— you know, I know what it's like when I talk to my parents or my mother. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if <laughs> I wonder if you had daughters in this movie. Um, I mean, put daughter characters into this movie mm-hmm. because you kind of were wishing for daughter stuff mm-hmm. um, rather than just yeah, mom, bye, son stuff. Um, 
Well, I always thought I would have daughters. And when I found out I was having sons, I, I, I wept out of fear. I just had no idea what I was going to do with that. And, of course, I'm thrilled to have my sons and wouldn't want anything different. But I guess um, I put daughters in the movie, I think, because I'm a daughter. And I think that, in essence, uh, I'm those characters still, especially in um, Please Give. I definitely am the teenage daughter who was riddled with acne. I was That was me, less than I was the mom in that movie. And in in this movie, I don't know, it just I have a niece I'm really close to, so she feels kind of like a daughter to me, and um, it it worked. It served the story better than sons, and certainly my sons were really close and still cuddle and laugh and enjoy each other, but there's a lot of like, oh, yeah, leave me alone, shut up, mom, stop dancing, you're <laughs> embarrassing me. <laughs> don't talk to anyone. Don't smile at my friends. Don't be nice to my teachers. <laughs> There's a lot of rules. <laughs> Do you have kids? I have one, but he's only two years old, so... He likes it when you dance. He thinks it's great. Yeah, <laughs> well, that doesn't last. <laughs> Dancing around in my underpants, he thinks that is an A+. plus. It is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Nicole Holofson, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. This was fun. Nicole's new movie is called Enough Said. It's in theaters now. Um, don't be dumb and, and miss it. Uh, go see it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and it's that time again. The leaves are changing colors, the air is turning cool and crisp, and the television networks are back with new fall lineups and new episodes. This week, we're joined by Eric Adams, associate editor for The Onion's AV Club, to tell us what he'll be keeping an eye on this fall and what's worth your time to check out. Hey, Eric, how's it going? Hey, Jesse. Um, I'm doing all right here. How about yourself? Ah, you know, holding on. Let's let's uh, talk fall television. Of course, fall television isn't what it once was, but there's still a few promising programs on, uh, on fall TV. I enjoyed Brooklyn Nine-Nine, watched a couple episodes of that. Your first recommendation is a show called Trophy Wife. Um, it stars uh, the very funny Malin Ackerman, uh, Marsha Gay Harden, Michaela Watkins, also very funny, Bradley Whitford. It's a great lineup of actors, but I, I think it would be hard for us to convince a public radio audience to watch a television program called Trophy Wife. Um, so it's your chance here to make your case. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really got the odds set against it with that title. Uh, it wins the Cougar Town Memorial Award <laughs> for most misleading title of the fall season. You hear something like that, you see some of the promotional materials that ABC has put out for Trophy Wife, and you sort of expect it to be maybe a, a little mean-spirited. You expect Malin Ackerman's character to maybe not be the most sympathetically portrayed, but it arrives with this really well-formed point of view. Uh. Someone had told me a year ago that I'd be married with three stepkids right now. I would have laughed in their face. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I bought Bert a puppy today because I killed Jose. The gardener? 
the hamster. Dad, Jose's not in his cage. Can you help me look for him? Bradley Whitford plays a lawyer who's been married three times, and Ackerman Watkins and uh, Gay Harden are his three uh, wives. And so there's a bit of competition there, and you could sort of, once again, seeing from that title, expect that the relations between these three characters are going to be kind of catty, but they all just sort of represent for how they want to do uh, the, the whole motherhood thing. And so I think it would be really hard to find one of the sitcom pilots that are coming out this season that doesn't seem like it's absolutely stacked with talent. But uh, you also have to back that up with a, a strong voice, a strong point of view. And I think Trophy Wife does that. And I hope that it lives long enough uh, to realize its potential. Let's go from a relatively traditional family network comedy to a very, very strange television program on the Cartoon Network, China, Illinois. This uh, just is is entering its second season this year. It just expanded to a half hour. Tell me a little bit about the premise of this show. Well, the premise of the show is sort of a reverse Animal House situation where the show is set at the quote-unquote, worst college in America, the University of China, Illinois, uh, where the students really want to learn, and it's the teachers uh, who want to party all the time and mess things up and constantly threaten to destroy the campus and the town that it's near. So y'all going to teach or what? Hot, hot segue. So... So June 28th, 1914, Archduke Ferdinand was cruising the drag in a convertible. And then... And then what? Tell us the answer, Test us tomorrow. We need that If you want to know the answers, meet us in the woods in one hour. And bring $100 each. Cash. Uh-uh, $100? You're already for life. What's another 100 bucks just to make sure you pass your exams? You feel me? Can you smell the jet ski coming? Uh, it's created by Brad Neely, uh, who I've been a fan of for a long, long time. Tell me about the cast of this show, because I think that it is worth noting that among its stars are not only the queen of indie film, Greta Gerwig, a past guest on this program, but also the qu- queen, the, the king, excuse me, of slams, uh, Hulk Hogan. Body slams, specifically. Yeah, it's a funny cast. Uh, Brad Neely kind of leads it. He plays three of the main characters, two of the professors who are are brothers, uh, Frank and Steve Smith, and then the sort of uh, idiot savant of the campus, uh, Baby Cakes. But it's it's fleshed out. But it's fleshed out by actresses like Greta Gerwig, like Chelsea Peretti, who uh, we're now seeing in a more expanded capacity on Brooklyn Nine Nine, and then also uh, sort of. Out of, out of left field choices uh, like Hulk Hogan, who plays the dean of the university as this sort of, you know, he plays him as he would play a professional wrestler. The character himself is, is muscle-bound and egotistical and just a real jerk. Uh, so it's a, it's, a funny, it's a funny dynamic that he's struck with, uh, with the professors, and he's, he, he's sort of like a, a despot on this uh, college campus. So really just the perfect role for Hulk Hogan to be playing. It's very similar to the way that he ran his household uh, on his VH1 reality show. 
Eric Adams from the AV Club recommends two television programs, China, Illinois, on the Cartoon Network, Sundays, which is entering its second season and its first as a half-hour show, and Trophy Wife, a new show on ABC, which you can find Tuesday nights at 9.30. You can find Eric's writing, of course, online at avclub.com. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Jesse. After a break, my conversation with the creators of Husbands, a web sitcom that follows a newly married gay couple. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Justin, what are you doing? Uh, strapping a uh, chicken to my arm. Heard there's some uh, plague out west, so I just wanted to you know, kind of get out ahead of it. Justin, if you'd ever listened to our medical history podcast, Sawbones, where we talk about everything from trepanation to bloodletting, you would know that that is a ridiculous idea and it will never work. Sawbones? I haven't caught it. Sawbones? Yes, it's every Friday on the Maximum Fun Network and we record it together. A doctor or something? Yes! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. A few years ago, TV writer Jane Espenson was fussing around on YouTube when she saw a video she loved, a commentary on a gay marriage-related pageant controversy-slash-disaster that was delivered by a man named Cheeks. I will start from the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. Right. asks, should all states legalize gay marriage following Vermont's example? To which Miss California replies, Well, I think it's great that Americans are able to choose one or the other. Wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm sorry. Can you, go, can you go back? You think it's great that Americans can choose one or the other. So you think it's great that Americans have the right to choose their fellow Americans' rights. Well, that's amazing. We actually have that in common, see, because I have always felt like Asian people should not be allowed to drive. Black people should not be allowed into high-end retail stores. Jews, well, you know what we should do with the Jews. Anyway, Miss California, please continue. But in my country... Whose country? I mean, we live in a land that where you can choose same-sex marriage or opposite marriage. I'm sorry, again, uh... Opposite marriage is divorce? I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. <laughs> Go ahead. And in my family, I think that I believe that... You think that you believe that? Think? Believe? Damn, you are convicted <laughs> in your beliefs that you think that you believe. <laughs> she loved it so much, in fact, that she wrote to Cheeks, who it turned out was really named Brad Bell, and they became friends. Out of their relationship came something both totally old and completely new, an odd couple marriage sitcom. That's the old part about an unlikely gay couple. That's the new part. Oh, and the other new part, they ended up crowdfunding it. Their show, Husbands, is a bit like a campy version of a classic sitcom like I Dream of Jeannie, if you accept the premise that I Dream of Jeannie wasn't already a little bit campy. Bell stars as Cheeks, a self-involved reality star. He marries a professional baseball player in Las Vegas while on a bender, and the hijinks begin. Here they are in the immediate aftermath. What's the news look like? Well, from my POV, yay, publicity. Plus, we look cute in shorts. <sighs> and from my POV? Mm, remember that 9-11 thing? Oh, and that was the head of GLAD on the phone, and they'd really prefer it if we didn't emerge from our drug den and file for divorce ten and a half hours after we get married. We'd be Brittany. Well, on the upside, we'd be Brittany. 
No, I'm not going to be the first gay divorce since the new law. We have to stay technically married for a while. Straight people do this all the time. In fact, if we weren't gay, this would be a hackneyed premise. I'm a role model. I'm a professional ball player. Do you understand the hell I went through to come out? Oh, you mean a few people have said some not nice things about you for a year? Try every day since I was 12 years old. Don't worry. It gets better. (laughs) (laughs) This is so cool hearing it with just the audio. (laughs) Husbands is just finishing off its third season. Brad Bell, Jane Espenson, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to talk to you guys. Thank Thank you. you. It's very good to be here. What were you doing when you made that video, Brad? Like, uh, what were you up to in the business and in your life? I was working at a matchmaking company, actually, um, and was having a conversation with my boss about the the debacle, the Miss California debacle. Uh, and the conversation about that was largely, you know, she didn't win the crown because she's um, for traditional family values. You know, everybody was um, upset that she spoke her mind and, and was punished. And my point was not that she was speaking her mind, but that she couldn't communicate it uh, articulately articulately. (laughs) Oh, how ironic. What was the relationship between the character that you used in those YouTube videos, Cheeks, who is in a, you know, maybe a slightly different form in Husbands, but um, is, you know, your character in Husbands, and you the actual person? Elements of my personality that that, uh, were heightened. You know, it's it's a satirical character and uh, I guess a reimagining of the kind of character that you don't expect a lot from. And then surprises you, um, sort of uh, Elle Woods and Legally Blonde, you know. Oh, she's she's a blonde sorority girl, and she's going to go to Harvard, and then she does, and wins her case. And it was that sort of idea of, of the uh, shiny underdog. <laughs> I, I A lot of times when I talk to folks who work in the entertainment industry and um, are gay, they're more aware of social relationships starting in adolescence, I think because of the fact that they have more to negotiate by virtue of being different mm-hmm. and by virtue of the, you know, the shores on either side of them being rocky in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, did you did you feel that way as an adolescent? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you grow up with a, a very keen sense of what's going on around you. Um, are you in danger? Uh, who... Who around you is thinking what? And you just you tune into the energy of, your, of a room very quickly, uh, which certainly helps as a performer. But, yeah, I also think um, as far as the awareness of people's behaviors and why they do what they do, um, yeah, and sort of always suspecting a subtext to everything because uh, so much of your world is, is shrouded in secrecy. So much of what you're thinking or going through or experiencing is not something you're expressing. So you kind of tune into what's happening beneath the surface with others. How did you feel about, um, uh, about Femi and outrageous gay characters in comedy as a teenager and as a kid? Um, I think, uh, and I still think that there's nothing wrong with them as long as they're layered and they have... Um, you know, levels and and development and and something going on other than you know the two dimensional um, reference it you know double entendres and love of shopping and things like that. I think those qualities are okay if you know if there's more of a character there. But I think the same for any sort of character: the sassy black friend, or the you know the dumb blonde, or um, the incompetent dad. You know, Homer Simpson's an incompetent dad, but he's an amazing character. 
Yeah, Homer Simpson's really great. (laughs) (laughs) Homer Simpson could basically do anything, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Let's get back to the story of creating husbands. Mm -hmm. Um, So as I understand it, Jane, when you first made friends uh, with Brad and talked to him about, you know, what kind of scripts he had in his drawer, mm-hmm. um, he had something that was a, a little different from what ended up what you got, what the two of you ended up putting together. Yeah, the first iteration of this was an idea he had called So L.A. That was the the idea of sort of cheeks and a female friend that ended up being the basis for what Haley became, sort of. Uh, uh, as young actors in L.A. realizing the time had come to grow up in their mid-20s. And it was like, this is really funny, and it's really good. I wish the premise were, uh, like, something that's in the zeitgeist right now. And he immediately picked on, up on it. And, like, the first thing you said was newlyweds. And I was like, yes, yeah, absolutely. That's what this should be, and it should be called Husbands because it's going to be the next Friends. Uh, it's like this is what television will be doing five years from now. And I think it was approximately... Two and a half years ago that I said that, maybe. Yeah, yeah. sounds right. Yeah, so um, maybe we're getting there a little faster than we even thought. You're saying that like you have a you have a countdown clock on your desk. <laughs> <laughs> in two and a half years, all of this will be yours. Yes, our plan for world domination is ahead of schedule. No. It's Bullseye. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. My guests are the longtime TV writer Jane Espenson and the actor and producer Brad Bell. They're the co-creators of a web sitcom called Husbands. It's about a gay couple who, like many others who've gone before them, go to Vegas, get drunk, and find themselves the next morning sort of accidentally married. Not wanting to be a bad example for marriage equality, the two stick together. I want to play a clip from the show. And um, in this clip, uh, basically what's happened is um, your character, Brad Cheeks, is has been presenting the facade of the perfect house husband, except that he has secretly been uh, hiring a housekeeper (laughs) to do all of those things while his husband is away. Mm -hmm. And um, he has realized that the jig is about to be up on that one and is decided to become an actual house husband. And so in this scene, he's trying to clean the house um, and his neighbor comes by and um, she basically tries to sort of interrogates him on why he's actually trying to be mm-hmm. the perfect house husband. Why aren't you out there? What made you famous? TV mostly. A couple dance singles. Oh, and I was a really popular meme for a while. Cheeks ain't having it. <laughs> See, that is much more you. Why aren't you out there being that? Well, because right now coming out is in. So if you were never in, then you're totally out. Gonna need a breakdown. Okay. When you come out, you abdicate the privileges of the hetero throne. You dig? Doug. Now, sure, some people call you a f- But most people call you brave. However, if you're a Nancy boy like me and you grew up in the glass closet, well, then you're just a stereotype. And not employing stereotypes means bring it on home, sister. Not employing you. So, here I am, kicking in the burbs, telling my comeback. <laughs> the, the squelchy noises you could hear on that clip were him polishing apples with window cleaner. <laughs> He's uh, trying some domestic domesticity. There's there's sort of two things going on in the show. One is you're interrogating this picture of domesticity, and then it's also interrogating, um, you know, constantly interrogating where gay people get to fit into all of this. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, um, that's absolutely correct. We start with the 
the model that we've always seen because there is no existing model for, you know, how are we supposed to be married two guys? Like, you know, we're husbands. There's not husband and wife. And there's no model in real life or in right. sitcom exactly. world. Exactly. So we take the model, the traditional model of sitcom world and start there. Like, OK, these are the roles that that are supposed to be correct. And then find the ways in which some of those things work and some of them don't. Jane, you're a natural born a- analyst. Um, mm-hmm. Can you give me an example of something that came up in the script, maybe something that surprised you that 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 reflected that kind of um, that kind of dialogue or, or interrogation that was going on? Well, I know there's there's when we get to those points like the the Nancy boy speech in that one and the one from the earlier clip um, uh about uh, the hackney premise. The, oh, no, the point after that about the f- people have been saying bad things about you for a short time. But these are things that I I will sometimes take a, a pass at a line like that in a script. But I tend to sort of hand those over to Brad because this is this is his authentic experience, uh, and so so he sort of is the analyst in these in these scripts, and sort of he's the one who puts in the political what the political take is on this or what he really wants to say um, about life as he's observed it. And I sort of go, OK, that's what we're going to say then. And uh, I guess I sort of put up fences around that with jokes to try to, to protect um, and make sure we preserve those moments. But I'm pretty much just throwing funny at the point of view he wants to express. Um, and we're both we're both writing jokes. We are very similar in our joke writing skills. Um, but I think Brad really brings the the analysis. Um, and it, I mean, it does surprise me. Sometimes I will say, well, I think the point we're making is this. And Brad will go, oh, such a straight person thing to say. <laughs> uh, here's what you're missing. And Wait, give me it, an example of that. Uh, yeah. One or the mm. other of you guys. Brad, when is the time that she said some real straight people stuff? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think that the... Um, I don't think that you had um, necessarily crossed any line when we came across um, the the line about femininity being perceived as weakness. And, and there's an idea that, you know, um, well, in order to show, you know, um, a positive or an accurate depiction of a gay man, you know, don't employ stereotypes. Those are bad. You know, femininity is um, not the way to show a man because that's a weak man. That's a man that's not a man's man. Um, and and uh, in the first season script, there's a line about, you know, you, you think that I'm supposed to fit into this role because I'm feminine and that must mean that I'm weak or that you're the dominant one because you're masculine. And I think that when you read that, um, you said, you know, I kind of always have thought mm-hmm. into this point, like, you know, why aren't we putting an unexpected you know actor in this role right. uh, for the gay person um, to be different and interesting? But that's actually... It's actually a misogynistic point of view to say, well, he's feminine. Femininity is weak. Right. Yeah, I had actually bought into to this notion, um, you know, when casting a gay man in a show, don't cast a feminine guy because then you are you are making the gays look bad by saying, oh, look, they're all like this. And so why aren't we saying there can be all different kinds? And it's like, oh, but but by saying the second you say it, they're not all like that, you're saying that's bad. Um, and yeah, that is definitely a thing that's been part of my education in doing this. Um, and there have been other moments where there'll be where I'll, I'll I will assume that like the PC thing to do or the thing that we should be saying is this, and then Brad will point out, well, no, as someone who's actually lived this, um, there, there's a subtler layer. You, you guys uh, started working on this project a few years ago now, um, and uh, I wonder if. 
your first idea was to pitch it for TV or if your first idea was just make it yourself? Mm, pretty well, quick, we got to make it ourselves. I wanted to make something online. And so when I was mm-hmm. developing the story for So LA that became Husbands, um, that was you know online. We, I think, at some point early in that process thought, is this an idea that we like so much that um, you know, maybe we want, we want to try and get um, big funding and, and get uh, a deal for it. But we also, you know, thought that it was something that because of the um, the distinctions and the specificity of the show and the tone and and what we wanted to say, um, we felt like you know you can't hand that over to a network and then right. just trust that <laughs> that uh, they'll make all the right decisions when they have um, total say. And so we yeah wanted to make it on our own. And I don't think we would have been able to get it made, actually, even if um, no, you we know. never even tried. We didn't tell my agent about it. We didn't. We yeah. didn't take any steps to take it out there because I think we knew that if if somebody did want to make it, that it would be taken away from us and mm-hmm. it would be done in a very different way. And I felt like the the things that we were going to say were sort of so special and so specific that it wasn't. The point of doing the show was to do the show right, mm-hmm. um, and and. I think it's been we've really had that borne out like I'm really glad we did it this way because mm-hmm. uh, it would have been taken out of our hands it wouldn't have been done right and and we've managed to make it a going concern uh, doing it our way um, yeah. the and crowd, crowdsourcing and then the CW jumping on in this last year has been amazing yeah, and, and showing that um, people like it <laughs> yeah. people like it it's it's um, it's it really affects people and moves people and and you know, a lot of that was generated with just 40 minutes of content, um, a huge movement. And so yeah. it, was, it was really incredible to see that and, and be able to turn to the industry and say, look, you can do this, actually. Mm-hmm. People are not going to run from it. Mm-hmm. Were, you, were you nervous about doing that, Jane? I mean, you, but, you know, you had worked on you had worked on TV shows since, like, you know, dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, not since dinosaurs <laughs> roamed here. Dinosaurs. Since, oh my God, that's going to be my new line. Is I've worked on TV since since there were dinosaurs on TV. Uh, yeah, I, but I wasn't I wasn't nervous about like will this affect my reputation or am I going to lose my money? Because you go into it assuming you're going to lose your money. I was just nervous about are we going to be able to do this well? Was it your your actual money? Season one was my money. Yeah. Um, and Did you then, have a plan or expect to make any of it back? No. Um, I mean, sort of like someday people will see how brilliant this is, and then they will buy it from us, and we will blink, blink profit. Were but you, it was were you paying for, were you paying people to work on it? Yeah, yeah. It cost that first season cost a lot of money, and then from but from then on, we've had it managed to have it financed through the fans and then through um, CW. But uh, yeah, it cost a lot of money, but it was it it wasn't. It was yeah maybe someday we'll make this back we'll sell the show but it was much more just like okay I didn't I never had a kid I'm gonna have this instead I'm gonna have this project that I really believe in and just make something that I will always be able to point at and say like oh, Brad and I made this amazing thing yeah and I remember initially being really worried like my plan was like we could make this for you know five thousand dollars right. and uh, and then you were like well let's do this right and let's make sure there's certain things that are just taken care of paid for and that mm-hmm. we're not you know shooting at the hotel without permission and things right, like that yeah um and i remember think you know being very concerned about the increasing cost because i didn't uh, want like buyer's remorse to set in and uh you said um 
well, you know, I have colleagues that spend this in a year on golf. So, it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's a creative passion and it's completely worth it. And, and um, I don't golf. And I think that's incredible. I think that's really um, admirable and respectable because there are so many people that work in television that um, complain about not being free to do what they want to do and if they only could do this and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, network control and, you know, why aren't right. we, why aren't they putting money into a project that da, 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 da. And um, I, I think that it's, yeah, very admirable that someone said, well, I'll, I'll take a small piece in the in the overall total of the the money that can be made from television and and put it out there and and show that it can be done and maybe that will have an effect yeah i think any tv writer who's who's going to work every day complaining about the the lack of control in our job save some money up because that's that's the thing you buy you can buy that control and make something on your own well, and, and it doesn't have to be expensive. You know, you, you right. say it costs a lot of money. Well, it, it it probably does to the average person, but in terms of television, it was right, yes. micro, 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 micro. It was a drop yeah. in the hat. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the stuff that I pay for is stuff like to take us to conventions where we can speak about it to people. And that's fun. That's something uh, that we we enjoy doing. We we love going out and meeting the fans. It's, and, and we've met fans um, the boy, the deaf boy, Dickie, mm-hmm. who's like like people who are so moved by the show that they sort of they can hardly contain themselves when they meet us and they and they and they see Brad and they sort of and they see this marriage and they see this example that they've never had before and, and it's like that's mm-hmm. that's so worth it. Yeah. yeah, those people that are touched by by um particularly yeah, um that kid who who was very much um he had he was wearing like bright neon colors i mean you think i'm outrageous yeah. Yeah, i mean you wouldn't even notice me standing next to this guy and he had like heart-shaped lolita sunglasses and earrings and was just They're amazing <laughs> and he in particular said like your message about you know being feminine is is something i never hear because you hear it from you know the 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 straight world is like why do you act like that? And then the gay community also says, you're making us look bad. Mm-hmm. Like That's not the example that we put on the poster. And we don't want you in media anymore. So it's it's very um, isolating and, and lonely. And so it meant something really significant to him. And the fans that understand and, and see that this isn't a story we've seen before. You know, we have had gay couples and we have had gay odd couples. Um, they've never been the center of the story uh, as far as their love, you know what I mean? It's, it's raising a baby or they're part of the ensemble. And, and this story is to young people. It is about their love very much in the way, you know, mad about you was, mm-hmm. um, and that's, it. that's what it's about. And then it, it uses sort of the, um, expected roles and, and models that we've seen before and then works backwards and dissects them. And is this something that's really cool is that, Early on, as we were describing this project to people, that's often the reaction was sort of like, "Yeah, but how many gay men are there out there watching TV? Is that going to make? How? What's this? There's going to be a ceiling on how many viewers you can get." And mm-hmm. it's like that's not our audience. The audience is sort of everybody, and particularly female viewers. We've found really like the show because they aren't being told by the casting which character they're supposed to identify with. So if you're watching Mad About You and you're a woman, you're supposed to identify with Helen Hunt. This show, you can choose. Any every viewer can choose. Do I feel like Cheeks or Brady in this situation? Which just sort of opens the show up. In mm-hmm. it to, it's a whole different experience for viewers, and in a way that's been really powerful. Yeah, and I love the the Golden Girls as an example because right. it's one of those shows where you know I don't 
think you could get that show made today because the response would be, well, you know, how many women in their 60s are going to, you know, mm-hmm. like, that's right. not enough for ratings. We need something broad. Yeah. You know, we need something that pulls in the young demo. And um, if you, if you, that show search. does pull in the young demo. People if you just search don't think about it. Yeah. on Twitter now, now, do it right now on Twitter. Search the Golden Girls and look at the demographic of people tweeting about it now. And this is, you know, in syndication right. 30 years later. Right. It's incredible. Right. It's, yeah. So uh, it's completely it, universal, even though yeah. it's about a very specific um, demo. Yeah, and so that's that's one of the things that we we really have embraced with the show is like don't assume that audience equals characters. The audience is the audience, and they're everybody. I'm obviously a public radio host, and my work is substantially uh, funded by my audience. Mm-hmm. And for the works that I spend the rest of my non-public radio hosting time doing, it's almost exclusively funded by the audience. Um, and so bear that in mind as I ask you this question. Um, a lot of my creative colleagues that I talk to are very uncomfortable directly asking their audience for support in their creative work. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, well, they're comfortable selling T-shirts. They may even be comfortable selling their work. Um, but they're not comfortable taking their hat in their hand, right. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Was that something that the two of you talked about after you made season one? And it was like, well, you know, Jane's trip to Vegas fund is empty. Um, <laughs> right. If we want to make more I, of these, we've got to figure out. I never, I never let out. that fund get empty. Yeah, Jane loves <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I was I, – I remember us having conversations where, where I would uh, – or I would say, like, we're taking the fans' money. And you would, you would point out, like – we are giving them more of the thing that they love. Right. And, and well, I've never, had absolutely a, right. I've never had a problem asking anyone for money. Let's just <laughs> <laughs> You got $5. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, I think it's a matter of perspective. Um, I mean, I, I have a, a background in sales, and I'm a natural salesperson. So um, the way I look at that is I can effectively ask people for money. I can close. And I also can understand that if I believe in what they are gaining for this purchase, then, I'll, well, A, I'll sell better. But uh, I think overall it's it's um, rewarding and you don't have to approach it thinking, oh, I'm, I'm asking for money. And, it it and doesn't I might have to look... be someone taking someone else. Right. right. No, not at all. I mean, if you, you know, if you, if your car is broken and somebody's like, I can repair that car for you, you're going to be grateful. You're going to want to, you know, um, I mean, you might not be wanting to spend the money on, on something that you, you're not gaining anything from that. You're just repairing what was. But, um, but exactly. It was it was an exchange of, you know, uh, we need support. And mm-hmm. for a very small amount from many individuals, we can continue to give you the thing that you love and that we love to do. So and People were leaping to give us the money, which was we made so gratifying. Yeah, 5500 yeah. in like the first minute. I mean, yeah. I hit refresh on the page after I posted it and it was like, $5,500. And I was like, what? Yeah, that was really amazing. And that was when it really came home like, okay, we, we are, people are jumping forward, bills in their hands because they want more of this content. We'd already had season one. And so we had a thing to show them like, would you like more like this? 
And yes, they did, and we're we're happy to give us money to make. And I actually ended up matching what we made on the Kickstarter, uh, so that we could do it right and give them something really nice. And and there are because of the way Kickstarter works, there are also incentives for the things. So we were giving them things in addition. Like you donate twenty five dollars, you get you know some a, a PDF of the script or whatever we were giving away. And so we also felt like we, there's value all over the place. It was it was really good experience. I totally recommend people financing their stuff in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was. Um, I think that the response time, the fact that so much uh, was brought in so quickly, specifically like that first minute, mm-hmm. I mean, that wasn't even enough time to you know watch the video that, that we'd made and posted on the Kickstarter. People were already sold on it. Like all I had to do was ask. I wasn't closing anyone into that deal. Yeah, it was cool. Do you think it changed your relationship with your audience um, or how you felt about your relationship with your audience? It it gave us. Um, it brought us closer. It brought us closer. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it gave us an actual sort of concrete list instead of just sort of how many views there had been. We had a list of names of people. Like here are people who love your show, mm-hmm. uh, and that was it. Made it really personal. Uh, I, I loved that. Um, and yeah, and I wrote little handwritten notes on some other things. There were certain um, certain items that we sent out uh, that came with like a note from me going, thank you so much for contributing and with their name. And it was really, it mm-hmm. felt nice to sit down and write those because you felt like this is, this is what the, the creator fan relationship should be that you don't really get in, in so often in broadcast television. Well, and it certainly um, brings a, a sense of confidence and a reward to what you're what you're doing, you know, you've, you've made um, something and it has a lot of views and, and people comment or like it or what have you. Um, and I think after a while, when people start to say, when are you going to make more? When can we have more? Um, it it can feel um, grabby hands. You know, it can feel hungry. It can feel like, we want more. We want more. We want more. And you you might start to think, well, I would love that, but I, I, I'm working on that. How are you going to help us make more? Um, because... If that's something you want, like let's work together on this because I want to do that for you. And so when you when you put it out there, like okay, we can make more if you will help us, and the response is immediate like that. It makes you feel like okay, like you are really as invested in this as I am, and it just makes the experience so much more um, connected. Mm-hmm. There's more speculative money in web video than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, YouTube put a bunch of money, like a, I don't remember, half a billion or a billion dollars into uh, kind of loans for production companies to make uh, web videos and various other outfits that make video for the web and for the internet more generally had to kind of step up their game to match up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these folks are spending this money, as I said, speculatively rather than with the expectation that they'll get immediate returns from it. Um, and I wonder if, um, I wonder what it was like for you guys when it came to make season three and you said to yourself, well, maybe we could have offers on the table to do it that way. Um, given that we have a proven audience Mm -hmm. and people really care, or we could do it this other way, or we could try and pitch it to TV again, or like, what, what was your thought process? was our thought process? That's I mean, it was sort of question. like CW called us before we even got too far down that road and was like, here's some money to make more. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that we weren't sort of sitting there, um, 
looking at a buffet of options. Uh, we had we were um, we had shot yeah, what we needed to shoot, and then, and then exactly. yeah, and then they were like, "We love you. We love the show just like it is. We make more of it. Here's somebody to make more, just right. like what you just did." It was it was this great. It was just dropped in our laps. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It was, um, yeah. I, we wanted to make more, regardless of I think what the um, source was or or where it was being distributed. As long as you know um, we could give it to the people who liked it, and um, that was what was important to us. And and getting uh, to make more, you know, and and pay everyone enough to mm-hmm. eat dinner that week. Mm-hmm. Jane, I'm still a little worried about you and all this money you've spent on this. <laughs> I'm fine. I really am. <laughs> Are you going to get this money back? Are we going to make it back in T-shirt sales? <laughs> well, we 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 talk about T-shirts. Um, I don't know if I'll make it back, but I'm okay. I, I It's like when you go to Vegas. You bring a certain amount that you say, this is what I can afford to lose. And if you make if you come back with any of that money, it's a win. You're up because you budgeted to lose it. Um, so I budgeted this money as like a thing I was willing to spend to make something great. I've, what I got back out of that was we made something great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it, again, it's the perspective of what you gain. Like did you right. lose money or did you gain you know, this, this show that you created that affects people and right. um, is something that you love? It's, it's and, all how you look at it. And technically, when when we got the money to make the re- most recent batch, we could have done anything with that money. I could have said, "Oh, I'm going to take out a chunk of what I what I spent on, like what I spent on that season one." But I chose not to do it because I wanted that money to be on the screen. Uh, we just want this product to be the best it can be. And so, yeah, if, if Brad we, wrote that yeah. stupid helicopter scene, <laughs> <laughs> Brad keeps it's his actually on the budget. opposite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jane sent me something, and I was like, "Exterior night? Are you insane? <laughs> Interior day?" <laughs> yeah. Oh, that. Whole thing that was going to be on the roof. Oh my God! Aren't we glad we didn't try to do that? And she's not kidding. That sounds like it. At first, I was like, "Oh, it's a bit." Oh no, right? It, there was a roof. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because that even the fact that it was on the roof and what that was going to cost, which the solution was just construct construct a roof um, and, and, and shoot we, it, you know, five feet right. off the ground. But then we ended up not even doing it. Yeah, because something else fell through. So it fell through the roof. Yeah. So we um, opted for something else. But I think what we got is really good, and it, it keeps it contained. Yes, in the absolutely. Kitchen, yeah. the roof to the kitchen. When you put limits on yourself, and you just you see this in regular broadcast TV too, there's always a budget ceiling. No matter what your budget is, you never have what you hope. Um, and so there's always constraints, and it almost always makes it be- makes it better. It's why having executives is actually better, because even even if you disagree with the notes that they give you, finding out how to make your point within that constraint makes you think about your point and, and mm-hmm. makes everything sharper. And so all the limits we've had to make husbands have helped make it Well, and I think it's worth better. noting that, that that happens more of the time than you hear about, but not yeah. in every instance. Yeah. So, Brad, Jane's been – look, Jane's got money to burn. We've already established that. She's been working since – She's doing it right now. Since <laughs> dinosaurs were on TV. Smoking 100. As, as, a, as a, you know, union television writer doing quite well for herself – um, you're, as I said, a young man, uh, a pauper, <laughs> poverty stricken, you're on your, you're starving. on your way up. Are you like, okay, let's get that real TV money now. <laughs> yes. I, I, I can't wait until I can just roll around in all of my TV money. Just play Robin Williams son <laughs> on something, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, am I, uh, I mean, 
I would say you, you certainly have never said, like, let's sell us anywhere that'll take it. Let's yeah, put the cash in our pocket. No, you are more, even more than me. You want to preserve what this is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, which is not to say, you know, money's not important to me. Of course, money's important. Money's important to everyone. And would I like, um, you know, to have a gorgeous house paid off and take, you know, tropical vacations? Of course. Um, but there's a limit on what I'm I'm willing to do or or sacrifice to get that. You know, I, I don't want to work on something that is just miserable or, or has some terrible message, you know, um, uh, or just something that I don't believe in. Um, but, I mean, you know, that's a choice you have to make. Sometimes, you know, you've got to pay the bills. And so you're like, okay, well, I'll do this for a while and this is just a job. Um, but ideally, you know, you, you want to be doing something that is something that really motivates you that you believe in. And that is um, the the way I have um, uh, that's been my goal uh, for a few years. And it's it's worked out so far. So I suppose ideally I would be doing what I love and making that fat TV dough and um, everyone would win. <laughs> Brad, Jane, thanks so much for being on Bullseye. It was Thank really great you. to talk to you. Thank this you. This is fun. Brad Bell and Jane Espenson are the co-creators of the, te- uh, I almost said television program. It well, is. It is television. television program. Okay. You can watch it on a television. You can it, get yourself absolutely. a Roku. Yeah. Get yeah. yourself a Roku, right? Uh, you can find it. It's called Husbands. You can find it online at husbandstheseries.com. Every week on the show, we like to close with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. Sir John Soane was one of the most important English architects of the late 18th century, which honestly I don't care about. I mean, good for him and good for late 18th century England that they had such a great architect, but I can't even name one other late 18th century English architect. So, look, I'm not going to talk about Sir John Soane's works or his influences or his style. I actually just want to talk about his house. It's in London on something called Lincoln's Inn Fields. And on the outside, honestly, you'd be hard-pressed to believe that it belonged to a famous architect. It looks like a couple of row houses. That's what I was thinking when I was standing outside in the rain waiting to get in. Honestly, I kind of wondered if I'd made a mistake in coming. Then I got inside the front door I don't think my awe abated for three hours. Every room in the house is filled to the brim, not in a hoarder way, in a sort of museum way, a little bit of a hoarder way. Every path is clear, but every wall is covered. Soane was a neoclassicist, so there are archway walls that are adorned with plaster casts of every classical architectural embellishment you can imagine, pediments and statuettes and beautiful little chunks of molding. There's a room he dedicated to his cork models of great classical buildings, the Parthenon and stuff. He felt they were essential for learning, and what few models existed were just too heavy to use to teach, so he made new models out of cork. There's a grand sarcophagus. It's Egyptian. He bought it, had some walls knocked out, had it dragged in, and then had the walls put back up. The British Museum apparently couldn't afford to buy it because they just bought the Elgin marbles. And 
There are thousands and thousands and thousands of books, classics and architecture and encyclopedias and novels. There's a tiny room off a staircase that's filled floor to ceiling with paintings of scenes from Shakespeare's plays. There's a tomb for his pet dog. Her name was Fanny. Every part of the home is ingenious, too. He invented the idea of using mirrors to make a room feel bigger. He created systems of skylights to deliver natural light to parts of the house that in 1780 would otherwise have been dank and dark. He designed the furniture himself. He even built into the actual living space a viewing gallery for his sarcophagus. The house, in other words, is the physical legacy of the man's thoughts and ideas. And as the public museum and the public library rose during Soane's lifetime, the private physical expression of thought was waning. In Soane's time, a learned man spent years traveling the world, gathering knowledge in the physical objects that represented it, books and rugs and plaster casts. But who does that now? Why build a private collection when you can go to the British Museum? Why have a private library when you've got Google? Why be a polymath when you can specialize? Being inside the Sir John Soane Museum is like being inside the spirit of a man, an amazing man, a visionary man of his age. And it's an endlessly fascinating place to be. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our senior producer, Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided to us by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast with whatever software you use to download podcasts. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org, or share those thoughts in our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. If you like the show, tell somebody. Well, that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.